Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal series, five wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! Exclamation Point, The Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, The Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, The Wise Woman Way, and Susan's latest book, Down There, Sexual and Reproductive Health, The Wise Woman Way. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public on appointment-only basis. She offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at the Wise Woman University. But you can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's see what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Let's see if this is Susan in the queue. Is this you, Susan? Oh, here she is. Here I am. Hi, honey. How are Hi, you tonight? How are you? I am doing oh, really I'm doing well. Good. Well, we didn't get five feet of snow, but we did get a lot of snow. And that's fun to finally have some winter. I was uh, going around saying I'm not putting my snow boots on until we have snow. That's it. And so now I can finally put my snow boots on. Yeah, we have to drive to the snow here. There's no snow in Eugene, but 
<laughs> it's all good though. I, I, it's funny. It's like I feel like sometimes I miss the snow, but then like when we went to Montana, I was like, okay, being in it, it's a whole other like living in it, it's a whole other thing. So I've yeah. become accustomed to not living in the snow, I guess. <laughs> I know Featherhawk. But we'll you know, be going to the- Montana, and she's like snowed in by the end of September sometimes. It's like, whoa. <laughs> and the snow there is like really dry and very cold and icy. And it's different than like when we have snow here, even in the mountains, it's a lot wetter and heavier. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. <laughs> well, this started out like that. started out that really nice, fine winter snow that you just love to play with and make things with. And then it warmed up just enough that a kind of icy crust formed on top. I've seen like maybe mm-hmm. four or five children out sledding. Oh, but there nice. should be dozens and dozens of children on all the sledding hills. Because it's icy and it's kind of like scary. Mm-hmm. That kind of, you know, little layer on the top where it almost holds you and then you like fall through. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. <laughs> oh, so some sad news, and that is that my dearly beloved Marie Summerwood is now walking the other world. Yeah, that's what I heard. Yeah, Marie came to apprentice with me more than 25 years ago. And um, she extended her apprenticeship to cover five months. And then she came back year after year after year for almost 20 years, cook with me to um, help in the really big workshops like Annie Sprinkle's Sacred Sex Workshops, where we had 25 or 30 women and really needed help in the kitchen. And then she herself taught workshops here at the Wise Women's Center. We did so many magic rituals together. And there was one that I always smile about. It was um, um, the early August ritual. We had a Green Goddess Week. And I was just, oh, it was so hot. And I was just kind of beside myself. My refrigerators weren't working well. And there were, we had the maximum amount we could have for the Green Goddess Week. Uh, I was feeling a little pushed about the cooking. And Marie and another woman who was a high priestess was here. And they wanted me to, like, sit with them and plan the ritual. And I said, I just can't do it. I'm sorry. I really can't. I just have to tend to this other stuff. Plan the ritual. Tell me what you want to do. And I will do it. I don't need to know. You can tell me, like, five minutes beforehand unless I have to have a special costume or something. And the next day... At Talking Stick, one of the women said, well, I could certainly see that Susan had planned that ritual because she was really grandstanding and really making a lot of herself in it. And I just had to laugh and to thank the goddess once again for showing me that people's opinion of me has nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. She's seeing what she wanted to see. And so it has always been. People will see what they want to see. And so what can we do is we can take responsibility for what we see. 
because that's the only place that we can be responsible is for what we're seeing and putting out. And Marie was Lady Beauty. So what she taught us to see was glamour. And whenever she said it, I always spelled it the British way, G-L-A-M-O-U-R, glamour. And, of course, a glamour is one way to talk about shape-shifting. If you shift into the shape of something else, then you are taking on its glamour. Mm. So while nowadays, if you ask someone about glamour, they might say, you know, push up, bra, facelift, you know, those kinds of things. But that's not the original meaning of glamour. The original meaning of glamour is to be able to throw out something that others can see that you know isn't necessarily you. Hmm. So that others may see you as some, you know, wolf going off in the night. And so you also know what they're seeing because you're the one who who created that image. Mm-hmm. Lady Beauty. Everybody mm-hmm. who has been initiated here since Marie's initiation and since Marie set up Lady Beauty's beauty shop has had the opportunity to visit Lady Beauty's beauty shop. And that will continue on. Mm-hmm. I don't know when this week's e-zine will be out. I know that it might already be out or later on or tomorrow, but it is an ode to Marie. And that I put together right after I went up and spent time with her. I was hoping that she would get a chance to see it, but not so, unless she has some maybe angel spy glasses. Yeah, she did. She she passed rather quickly. It was like kind of sudden for people. It was, was one hundred and thirty-five days from her diagnosis to her death. So, yeah, it's fast. Mm-hmm. But when she was diagnosed, it was stage four metastatic cancer. Mm-hmm. So that's a long time to live with a cancer that far advanced that does not respond to chemotherapy. And it didn't. She did decide that she wanted to do chemo. And she did nine doses of Taxol, and it basically did nothing except enervate her. Mm-hmm. So Marie's spirit, Marie's beauty, Marie's magic lives in her community, her community of choice in Syracuse where her family is, and it lives on brilliantly here at the Wise Woman Center. And I believe that Marie lives in the heart of most people who apprenticed with me, because Marie was apprentice number 50, and she touched almost every other apprentice in some way who came here. There might have been a few in the early spring or a few in the late fall who didn't have any time with Marie, but I doubt it, because between helping me cook and then coming and teaching, 
workshops here herself, and she taught sacred sex workshops with me. Once Annie said, I'm moving to the West Coast. You two have to carry on. We did. She taught workshops on grief. She taught chanting workshops. One of the songs yeah. on, our, on our CD, It's Time. And, of course, Marie put me up to that, right? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have made a CD for the 25th anniversary of the Wise Woman Center, but Marie said, well, we have to celebrate the 25th anniversary. Let's make a CD. And I'm like, I can't do that. She said, sure you can't. Here's how you do it. And she left her phone number open for all of us to call when, you know, because it's hard to apprentice with you. And to, she would, I remember speaking with her on the phone while I was there um, as a support, too. She was reminiscing about that, about how many of you mm-hmm. called and how how glad she was that she had posted her phone number so that she could talk to you and remind you that you had made a commitment. Mm-hmm. And that while it seems like you can run away from an apprenticeship, um, as anyone can tell you, you can't run away from being a parent. Yeah. <laughs> and they're a lot harder on you than I was. I never threw up on you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? <laughs> or, or hit me or, you know, all the things that my tell me that they, you know. Any of it at all, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Kids. Yeah, they're so intense. Yeah. Life is very, mm-hmm. very intense. Life is intense. And how wonderful that we can, you know, just really be present to that that charge of life, that that real intensity. I think that's what we're here for, is to uh, yeah. feel it, manifest it, share it, and go, woo! Well, you definitely got it, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I tell you who else got it is our guest coming up tonight. We have Vera Babayeva. She is a Harvard educator, scholar of comparative religion, and a spiritual storyteller. Oh, we are going to be having such a good time and uh, hearing what. Vera has to say about Kali Takes America. Stay tuned. She'll be here at 9 o'clock East Coast time and whatever time it is, wherever you are. And if you don't mind, I'd like to take the opportunity just to tell people I posted some stuff in my shop, some new stuff. Um, If they can just go to my Etsy shop at etsy.com backslash shop backslash nourish wholeness and um, check out some of the tinctures and um, some face cream and stuff that I just put up. And, um, yeah, some good stuff. Wonderful. Hooray. So you're settled into your new house and you're pharmacating pharmacies. Yeah, yeah, I have a great space here. I have um, a little office space that has its own little kitchen in it, and um, I have all my stuff out here, it's, and this is where I'm doing the radio show from, and yeah, lots of possibility with the new space, so. Ooh, a room of her own, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's, it's really nice. It's nice and quiet and separated from the house, and it gives me gives me some space, so it's good. Good, it's good. Yeah. Uh, Anybody have any questions? And we have a lot of 
Yeah, we have a lot of people online and just a couple people with their hands raised. To ask a question, you need to press 1 to speak with Susan. And our first caller is coming from the 718 area code. Hi, Susan. I have... I um a few hours ago I knocked my head in um mirror of a truck. I didn't see it, but it was parked. And in the beginning it just like hurt a little bit. I didn't really think much of it, but as the time was passing the pain was increasing. So I put ice, I put um St. John's wort oil, the red oil. Mm-hmm. And now I'm feeling like a lot of like a heaviness, like almost like a I don't know how to describe it, like like a weight on on my head, you know, and the pain is radiating to the side and a little bit to the eye muscles. I was wondering if there's any herb I should consider to take that would help to relieve this pressure and maybe help with the pain too. Um, there might be. Okay. The real danger with head injuries. Mm-hmm. is exactly, as you say, swelling. Now, that obviously happens to anything. If you, like, slam your finger in a drawer, it's going to swell up mm-hmm. because it's swollen. The difficulty with the brain is that there's not a lot of room in there for swelling. And so that causes parts of the brain not to get as much blood and nourishment. And so there can actually be some slight nerve damage. Now, I don't know... Um, what would happen or what you would be offered if you went to a walk-in emergency center. Um, I'm not suggesting that you do that, but I am Mm -hmm. saying that head injuries can be serious. They can cause brain damage now and in the future. And in a few rare instances, they have actually caused death. So, as so long as you know that and you're, you know, comfortable with all of that, and you can mm-hmm. probably find out more about, you know, what you would be offered in a medical setting. Skullcap, of course, is the herb whenever anything happens to the head. Oh, okay. Okay. So, I think ice is an excellent idea. Mm-hmm. Skullcap tincture is an excellent okay. pain reliever. The first that I ever heard of Skullcap was from an MD who was taking an herbal medicine class that I was giving, and he asked me if I knew about Skullcap, and I said no. And he said he had been using it to help a young man who had tried to kill himself by jumping off a bridge, and he did such a poor job that he not only survived, but he didn't even fall in the water, he fell on the land. Hmm. And he fell on his head. And he said that the, that he was making an incredible recovery with skullcap. Now, I primarily use skullcap tincture, and I use skullcap tincture that I make from the fresh plant because it grows wild here where I live. And um, <clears throat> I know that um, Red Moon Herbs and Catskill Mountain Herbs and um, that Rebecca all make their tincture from fresh skullcap. I find the tincture fresh skullcap so different than tincture made from dried skullcap that I would hardly even consider them the same herbal remedy. Wow, okay. It's kind of like the difference between Velveeta and a farm-made cheese. 
You could call them both cheese. But they're, you know, very far ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So I find that the tincture of fresh skullcap in 100-proof vodka is a reliable pain reliever. It's very small doses. Four to five drops may be enough. It induces sleep. And you may need anywhere from 10 to 20 drops to induce sleep, depending on how difficult sleep is. Um the doctor who was talking about it was actually using more like a skullcap infusion. It is a mint, and usually we don't make infusions of mints because they contain volatile oils. But dried skullcap doesn't contain those volatile oils. That's why the fresh tincture and the, and the tincture made from the dry plant are so different because the volatiles dissipate very rapidly in the skullcap. So it's considered a scentless, <clears throat> somewhat tasteless mint. And he wasn't, you know, um, using as much herb as I do, but he was brewing it, you know, letting it steep for a fairly long time without any added heat. And so so fascinating to me that I started reading about Skullcap, and that's when Skullcap revealed herself to me and said, here I am, right here under your feet. Wow. Of course, my feet were wet. It grows in very wet places, but Mm -hmm. wander around a lot with the kids, so. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. And I just had a like a other question that I wanted to ask you for a while. Is there an herb that if I wanted to just like mix it with water to spray more for like the face? Like I don't I don't really like using um products. Mm-hmm. Is there an herb that's a variety of different things that are just delightful on the face, depending on what we want to get. Um and in general, olive oil is fabulous mm-hmm. for the face. Any herb that you put in olive oil and then put on your face, well, hey, you just made it even better, didn't you? Yeah. Honey is incredibly good for the facial skin. And any herb that you put in honey, oh, again, you just made it that much better. Mm-hmm. So calendula. Calendula flowers are easy to grow. They go very easily into olive oil. And they are um, like that expensive face cream that's supposed to remove wrinkles. But that's what calendula really does. It removes not just wrinkles, but scars. Mm. Oh. Yeah. So, wow, what an easy face cream mm-hmm. to make. And then I, oh gosh, one year there was a lawn in my area that must have had I really, I am not exaggerating, five million violets on it. It was a huge lawn, and it did not look green. It looked purple from the violets. And we went, and we just, like, made ourselves silly harvesting violets. Mm -hmm. And I made myself a jar of violet honey. You have to make a lot of violets to fill a jar, but I did and filled it with honey. And I put that on my skin, and oh, wow. Because violet, of course, um, helps to... Get what's in circulation up into the skin. Mm, okay. Yeah. Yes, wonderful, wonderful skin. And there are um, also books on things that you can make and do. Several of them, you know, really wonderful books. 
so look around for you know natural natural cosmetics and, and uh, I think that you are embarking on a really fun adventure. One of the assignments in my Green Witch Correspondence course is to have a natural beauty spa with your friends and use only natural substances, nothing but. And my favorite response to that was, I invited four of my friends over. This is a woman who lives in Costa Rica. My avocado tree was filled with ripe avocados. And so we took turns smearing them all over each other from the top (laughs) of our head to the bottom of our feet. Then we laid in the sun, and then we went for a swim in the ocean. Does that count as a spa day? It really does sound good. (laughs) Oh, wow, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Right. I I think last week or a couple of weeks ago, I talked about a piece of glass that had gotten lodged in my foot and how I tried all of these different poultices, and the one that really worked was squash. And then I've since learned that they, you know, make a fancy thing out of pumpkin that you can pay $100 to have a pumpkin facial at a spa. You can just grate up some pumpkin and put it on your face. Wow. Hmm? I am going to, you know, work with this a little bit. Sounds sounds a lot of fun for me. Yeah, I think you are going to have a lot of fun. Okay, thank you so much, Susan. I, I really feel better in, you know, knowing that I can try something to help myself, and I'll just watch for how I, you know, my symptoms hopefully will get better. Thank you. You're welcome. Green blessings. Green blessings. The next caller is coming from the 847 area code. Hi, Susan. Hi. All right, I have a health-related question. We're first asked to ask, based on your introduction, what exactly is a high priestess? We're talking about your... It is a high priestess. A high priestess is a term that's used um, in Dianic Wicca, and it is used to describe someone who has, first of all, been initiated as a witch and who has then gone to the person who initiated her and said, I want to be a high priestess. And the person who has initiated her will tell her um, what has to be done. Anyone can be initiated as a witch. You can be a solitary witch. You can work with others, Um, but a high priestess is a position of service. And in order to have that position of service, you have to show that you are willing and capable of performing the services um, that, that you have to offer to people as given your position in the same way that a priest, a Catholic priest says, says mass every day. Once you have, in fact, completed those tasks, and it's not, um, they're not arbitrary, they're the same tasks that are given to everyone, um, then you can go and you can say that you have completed those tasks. And then if the person who has initiated you um, sees that that has been done, then they can initiate you as a high priestess. Wow. 
Sounds very cool. Mm-hmm. When you're initiated as a witch, um, you are asked to choose a name by which you will be known. It can be your birth name. It can be a name you, you made up. I always tell a silly story about my initiation and how <coughs> I couldn't think of a name. And in this initiation, we were put into a tub of, of nice warm water with all these flowers in it. It was really yummy. And I, like, hung back so that I was the last one because I still didn't have a name. I didn't know what I was going to say. And the deal was you were supposed to, like, say your name when you stepped out of the tub. So I'm, like, hunkering down on the tub. I don't want to get out. And they're, like, all, you know, you know, asking me and then controlling me and then, like, pulling me. And finally I'm, like, you know, removed from the tub. And as my foot touches the ground, I say, I am Iona. And I think, oh, my gosh, I just want to, like, die and sink through the floor. How could I have said that? It was seven years before I found out that Iona is the island of the fairies. Hmm. And so I am Lady Iona, because when you're a high priestess, then you are a lady. Then your name has a lady in front of it. Just as Marie, when I initiated her, she says, my name is Beauty. And then after she did the requirements and said, I would like to be initiated as a high priestess, then her name became Lady Beauty. Uh, that's why you were coming there. Yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah, I was just curious. Um, anyway, my health-related question is, I've developed a rash on the back of my hand this winter, and based on a lot of the reading I've done trying to um, help make it go away, it seems like a lot of people would call it eczema. I don't really know if it's eczema or rash or what. That means but, a rash that we don't know what is caused yeah. by, and we have no idea how to make disappear. That's what eczema means. Well, so I it is eczema, to... isn't it? It is. It is, because you don't know what caused it, and you don't know what's going to make it go away. And it's uh, it started off as an itchy spot, and then it looked like a couple little pimples, and now it's like, I don't know, maybe a half-inch circle of inflamed, round, red. Mm-hmm. What hasn't worked? Um, burdock oil. I've been Has not worked, Whenever I have a chance, I just dip my finger in burdock oil and rub it on there. I had uh-huh. a salve that I was using, and my wife mm-hmm. suggested try to spray burdock oil mm-hmm. rather than salve, and I've been doing both. The problem is I work all day long outside, and I'm wearing gloves most of the day because I'm in northern Michigan, and it's cold. Yeah. So I'm having a hard time figuring out how to keep a salve or oil on there under the glove. What I would do would be to put a Band-Aid on over the salve of the oil. Or, if that didn't work, there Mm. are very thin gardening gloves. I don't know if you've ever seen them. They're super thin that you can get. Or even a pair of... Um, examination gloves, right? Right, like like rubber gloves. Yeah, not really rubber, but yeah, rubber gloves, right. And that can go under the glove that you're wearing. 
And if you want to, and I've seen people do this, it looks like, hey, that's pretty cool. Like they took like a rubber glove, and then they wanted to use it for the hand. They just cut the fingers off with a pair of scissors. So you think that having it confined like that is okay, like given that it's covered in oil? Yeah. Yeah. Better the oil than a salve because the salve has beeswax. And there's been a few, admittedly very few, but there's been a few times when people had rashes have actually gotten worse because the beeswax did prevent normal skin respiration. Hmm. So, you know, my first thought, of course, is always plantain oil. Anytime there's an unexplained skin rash that's itchy, my very first thought is going to be plantain oil. I was just visiting... Down in uh, Tucson, wonderful herbalist there, Donna Cheshire, gave me her sage salve. And you could use just about any kind of sage, and I'll tell you, it is amazing stuff. I am really enjoying having access. Yeah, sage and oil, right? And then she just added a little wax to it right. to salve it up so that it wasn't, wasn't oily. And, you know, I get bumped and bruised and so on in the barn a fair amount. And I just have it around and it just really, oh, just so heals everything so quickly. So yeah, those so are uh, two possibilities. And I don't know if you heard me talking about the piece of glass that got lodged in my foot. And what I did was I did a different poultice on it every day until I got it out. Because I just wanted to learn about poultices. And I did. And eczema is a great place to try a whole bunch of different things. Right. Yeah, unfortunately, there's not that much fresh herb around right now. As far as comfrey. No, there isn't that much fresh herb around. You have to, like, rely on what you've made last year or in previous years. Yeah, you have plants in oil. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, obviously, it has to sit six weeks anyhow. So it's not like you could just go out and and make it right now. Oh, I was was, was talking about a poultice. Oh, no, I was suggesting not that you do poultices, but that you do different oils. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So any idea, is it, I mean, do you think it's possibly, I don't know, any idea what it would be causing it? Or is that the point (laughs) of eczema, you don't know? Here's what could be causing it. Water, air, food. In other words, everything that we take in that keeps us alive can cause a reaction on our skin. And this is why it's very difficult to determine what exactly is causing any particular skin outbreak. And so we have this wonderful word, eczema. Uh, You have have eczema, right? And then you get all the subclassifications of eczema. So you can see that it's just like, hmm. Okay, that's the place they put all these, and there's hundreds and hundreds of different skin rashes that we have no idea what is causing them. 
I've seen some people want to really, like, really figure it out. And they, like, you know, spend years and a lot of money sometimes trying to track down what it is. I'm not so sure that it's that, it's that useful to find out what's causing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as long as it can go away. Right, exactly. It could be anything from you using a different laundry detergent to your mom got sick. Right? right. The skin is, is reactive to everything that happens to us. So get your mom better and go back to the uh, previous laundry soap, right? <laughs> I often talk about the skin the skin being the part of us that protects us right the skin is where we stop or start depending on which side of the glass you're on and when there is a problem with the skin then the two primary things that can be going on are we feel locked into our skin and isolated, and we need to break our skin in some way to expose ourselves. Or we feel thin-skinned and we feel like life is rubbing us raw. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely had a lack of sleep lately. And, yeah. You know, yeah. Depleted immune system. It's interesting because my dad... My whole life, my whole childhood, always had eczema in his hands, like the back of his hand. And now just this winter, like I'm a new dad, and all of a sudden I have this eczema in the back of my hand. I'm like, oh, no, I'm turning into my dad. <laughs> it's okay. You were him all along. <laughs> it was just really weird kind of thing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What a thing. What a thing. Well, you can use, whenever you see it, you can use it. To trigger your love for your dad and to remind yourself that um, that you have a dad. Yeah. Yeah. So it's you don't necessarily need to make this go away. What you need to do is make it friendly, right? Right. Good one. So that your friends, it's not bothering you. <clears throat> That's, really good. That's kind of what we want with dad too, right? Be my friend. Don't bother me. You don't have to go away, right? <laughs> I just... All right. Okay. Cool. Good talk. Right, thanks. You. thanks for calling. Green blessings. Good night. Our next caller is coming from the 718 area code. Hello, Susan. Hi. Hello, Susan. Hello. Hi. Very very nice to be in contact with you. Uh, first, I just wanted to thank you for all the research and the analysis that not only that you've done, but that you've shared via print or online media channels. Um, I, I very much appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Certainly. My, my wife and I have been drinking nourishing herbal infusions for more than one year right now. In fact, I'm uh, toasting you with a glass of nettle as I speak. So. All right. Clink, here's my red clover. 
Ah, <laughs> uh, very good, very good, very good. Uh, I have a question for you, please, about LDL cholesterol and alternatives to statin therapy. Okay. Um, I'm aware of LDL and HDL cholesterol's functions. Uh, how sometimes really? why nobody else is. By the lyric. We well, have no I, idea I, what I they do. I do my best to. I'm <laughs> I, telling I, I you, we have no idea what they do. You are aware well, of what people are saying they do. But what I'm uh, telling you is our knowledge is pretty darn partial. We do not really understand cholesterol very much at all, nor do we really understand the relationship between high-density and low-density cholesterols. In fact, what we're finding is that in postmenopausal women, that um, more high-density cholesterol can be an indicator of heart disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, that's you know that's not what we're told now, is it? Correct. So let's reel all the way back here. Do firefighters cause fires? <laughs> uh, let's stipulate no that they don't. They generally don't, but they're always seen around fires. Correct. There are a significant number of people who say that cholesterol really has nothing to do with your heart health. Okay. And that the only reason we are focused on cholesterol is because there are drugs that lower it. Right. And those drugs are making a billion dollars for people. Mm -hmm. So what... Can we say? What I can say is that we know what makes a heart healthy. Okay. Vigorous exercise on a regular basis makes the heart healthy. Mm. We know what makes the heart healthy. Good fat, real fat that hasn't been mucked around with makes the heart healthy. Butter, full-fat milk. These are things yes. that make the heart healthy. Because isn't that really our goal? Is our goal to measure up and to get our numbers right, or is our goal to be healthy? No, clearly to be healthy. You're right. Right. I have never had my cholesterol measured, and I never will. <laughs> Why should I? Can't imagine. No, it's, I understand where you're coming from with that. So, yes. Right. The more you get measured, the greater the possibility that you won't measure up. Hmm. And the response of the medical profession is to put you on drugs. Right. If you don't measure up. So, if you're not going to take those drugs in the first place... Unless there's some real reason, don't bother measuring. Do the things that make you healthy. To that end. Yeah, they're wonderful you. herbs for heart health. Motherwort, Leo, Nurus, Cardiaca, powerful herb for heart health. 
in the Mint family, very safe to take as a tincture. Okay. I'm sure you've heard the story of my sweetheart, who many oh, years yes. ago now had a bypass, and basically he was getting, um, let's see, about 25% of the blood flow to his heart that he should have. And the doctors told him that there would be areas of his heart that would be dead, even though they would do the bypass. And when the surgeon came in to speak with him, the next day he said, I have held your beating heart in my hand, and there's no damage anywhere to your heart, none. He said, I've never done a bypass on somebody who had three major arteries, 80% blocked, without any damage to the heart. What are you doing? And Michael said, motherwort. Hmm. Motherwort causes capillaries to grow around the heart and the uterus, ladies, which even then, if there are major blood vessels being blocked, the heart is still being fed. Right. Right? Okay. Yes. Understood. Yeah. Hawthorne is renowned all over the world as the the herb for the aging heart. It increases the chi of the heart increases the power of the heart's pumping it increases the heart's ability to suffuse the blood vessels all the way into the capillaries without raising blood pressure excellent and again Hawthorne it's in the apple family you can drink Hawthorne tea you can drink Hawthorne infusion you can take I take Hawthorne tincture every day okay just because hey I'm 70 <clears throat> that's an aging heart Quite, quite So hooray for motherwort Hooray for Hawthorne Hooray for, you know, doing something every day That leaves you breathless Got it You don't have to go out and play football for an hour Even if you just run down your driveway (laughs) At the end of it, that's enough Okay Let's do something, right? That really says to your heart, hi, you're needed. <laughs> Good to hear. Good to hear. All right. Susan, thank you so very much. So uh, and then, you, you know, for all the specifics and so on and so forth, I do have an online uh, course, How to Have a Healthy Heart, The Wise Woman Way, and it's divided into Several parts. You can take one part. You can take all the parts, however you want to do it. And one of the parts focuses on cholesterol. And yes, there are. There is, you know, a, at least a page, if not a page and a half, of foods that are known to reduce cholesterol. And I bet you, you're already eating most of them. I will definitely check the list out and see what I've got. Okay. Very good. Green blessings. Thank you, Susan. Green blessings. Good night. Good night. The next caller is coming from the 512 area code. Hello? Good evening. Hi. Oh, I'm so glad I got through. Um, So I have a thyroid-related question. Um, I am about 18 or 19 weeks pregnant. And uh, I um, just had my thyroid checked um, 
when I did my blood work and my TSH levels were uh, high at 6.16 and well my midwife was concerned about it so I was calling to see if you had any advice um, regarding that situation. I'm not sure if you had an opportunity to listen previous caller, but it bears repeating. The more often you're tested, the more often you will be told that something is wrong with you. Why do you have blood work done? You don't need to have blood work done. You're a perfectly healthy pregnant woman, yes? Um, yes. I mean, yeah. I think so. And now, yeah. <laughs> you're now, you have a health concern because your midwife is upset. Right. See, this is how we totally yes. lose it. This is how we totally lose the fact that it's our health and our body. And you don't have to do anything because your midwife wants you to do it. And you sure don't need to have any blood tests. Okay. Yeah. My sister was not practicing as a midwife now, but when she did, she was a very well-known midwife and her partner, Anne Fry, wrote the book on blood work during pregnancy. It was like 600 pages. And the last time I was pregnant, I called up Anne. I said, Anne, I'm pregnant. What blood work should I have done? She said, none. You crazy? Yeah. You healthy woman. Do not have any blood work done. She said, you wrote a 600-page book on blood work during pregnancy. She said, right. And you stay away. That's the expert's advice. The person who knows everything about blood work during pregnancy says, you're a healthy woman. Don't get any blood work done. Okay. okay. Well, I guess then... So uh, now you have to decide if you're going to make your midwife happy or not. My suggestion is to start eating seaweed. That's what I did. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Fucus tastes nasty. Really tastes just like fish, seaweed, ocean. Oh, my gosh. It's like, it's not like that. Nice whiff you get off of it. It's like the oh, whiff you get from it. But I'll tell you, Fucus has a powerful effect on the thyroid. I was shocked. Okay. Shocked, shocked, shocked. My gym partner, after listening to Ryan Drum's teleseminar, and I think it's still available, Ryan and, and I did a teleseminar, I guess, two years ago now, on seaweed and thyroid. And she listened to that, and she said, well, golly, golly, okay, I'm getting off my thyroid medicine. I said, how long have you been on it? 20-some-odd years. I'm like, what? She's off her medicine. So... Are you feeling any thyroid effects? Are you particularly tired or particularly hyper or particularly cold or particularly hot? No. Hmm. No, the only reason I had been concerned at all that it may have been an issue that, you know, I don't know how long something like that can go on uh, without those symptoms that you just mentioned, but um, I know... I mean, even as long as two years ago, uh, I just seemed to, my metabolism did seem to kind of shift, which could be obviously age-related. I don't know. I'm 36. Um, 
first child? I was working. I heard other children in the background. Yeah, I have other children. I have another uh, two-year-old, and then I also actually have a 13-year-old. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So and um, I was... Metabolism oh, shifted when you gave birth to the two-year-old? It was right before I got pregnant with her. Mm. I just noticed that I had some really big lifestyle changes, too, though. You know, like I was uh-huh. working full-time, on my feet all the time, and then I got out of that field, which was retail, because it was just really demanding and terrible for family life. So, um, and then I started nannying and doing other like much slower-paced work, and um, you know I figured it could have had something to do with that as well. Um, the main thing that I noticed that just earned me was when I was exercising really regularly. I wasn't really seeing the results that I thought that I should. And I knew that that is kind of, you know, that that can be related with thyroid. What results were you looking for from exercise? Um, Well, generally, uh, like if I, in the past when I had done like, you know, maybe the previous year when I had done similar exercise, like bar and things like this, um, I just had slimmed down a little faster, you know. Lose weight. Exercise is not for losing weight. Exercise is not for losing weight. Exercise converts fat to muscle, and muscle weighs more than fat. Right. If your exercise is productive, then you will weigh more, all things given. Right. If you want to lose weight than eating less. Yeah. (laughs) Sizing more will do that, but exercise itself will almost always make you weigh more. Okay. But it's muscle mass. It's muscle mass. So although you weigh more, your, your metabolism is in a much better place. Right. Because that muscle is burning fuel even when you're sitting around painting your toenails. Fat doesn't burn fuel at all, but muscle does. Right. One of my friends who has a Fitbit said, well, one of the things I found out from the Fitbit is that if I take, you know, like 8,000 steps in a day, that, that that it's not that much different from taking 10,000 steps in a day. I said, well, that's almost a, a mile different. She said, yeah, but I only burn like an extra 100 calories. I said, ah, ah, you're just looking at like the difference between walking 8,000 steps and you burn this many calories and walking you know, 10,000 and you burn that many calories. But what you can't see there is if you take those 10,000 steps, that your muscles are burning more calories in every quiet moment, even when you're sleeping, than if you took the 8,000. Right. So you weigh more, but you do change your metabolism in ways that are beneficial to you your life. It's very hard to know what's a normal variation and what's something that's threatening and dire. But in my experience, and please, you know, listen to, to you know, what Ryan Drum has to say. He's a wonderful person on thyroid. But in my experience, if you are not having symptoms, 
from a thyroid problem, then it is usually best not to do anything. Okay. Um, yeah, she just... When I, was uh, writing, I guess, when I was writing step five, you know, pharmaceutical medicine, and I said to myself, hmm, I wonder what the... What drug is the drug that has the most prescriptions written for it? And I would have guessed statins, but I was wrong. Thyroid hormone. There are more people taking thyroid hormone than any other drug. Now, it's not by many. I mean, we're talking about like tens of millions in both statins and thyroid, and then it's like, you know, a, a tenth of a million or something difference between them. It's not much different. But it's a huge, huge thing. And it, you know, takes some grit if you get started on thyroid medicine to get off of it. Not, It's not the kind of thing that, that even anybody, everybody is interested in. Some people are, but not everybody. I hope that this has been at least somewhat helpful. I know it's a confusing subject. No, it's it's really helpful. It's just one of those things where, you know, then I have to confront, you know, the situation where if my levels don't go down and then she's, like, suggesting I do something else or whatever. So I guess I just have to tell her that I'm not going to worry if I don't have symptoms because, in truth, I really wasn't exactly. worried. You know what? <laughs> yeah. have to have another test, do you? Um, no, I mean, I guess I don't if I don't want to. Yeah. You do not have to have any tests you don't want to have. Are you, is the midwife there to help you, or are you supposed to be taking care of her? Right, yeah. She's there to help me, but I guess, you she's know, there to she help kind of you, but she's going to impose her will on you? Yeah. Already, I'm concerned for your birthing experience. Already, I'm wondering if she listens to you and she is going to be there for you during your birth or if she has an idea about how birth should be and wants your birth to be like that. Yep, I can understand that for sure. Well, you you need to ask those questions too. Because you oh, yeah. would be better off with no midwife than a midwife who has an agenda that you're supposed to toe up to. Right. Right. I remember, you know, the midwife telling me that Lama's breathing was a kind of breath practice created by a male doctor who didn't like that women seemed to be too self-directed during labor. And he thought he could take that away from them and give him control by requiring them to breathe in a very awkward and strange way. And yet you're probably being taught Lamaze breathing as though it were some special thing, right? No, no, nothing like that. Yeah. Happy to hear that. Yeah. She's pretty, I mean, she's had two unattended births herself, actually, which is kind of funny. So, like, she said two what? I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry, sorry. What did you say? She said two what? 
um, unattended home birth. So she um, intentionally had an unattended home birth, uh, you know, just by herself with her partner the first time. Mm-hmm. And then the second time, uh, I guess she lived kind of far out of the city. And so the midwife didn't get there in time or something like that. But, um, but my yeah, buddy, so Janine Carbati used to say, the two of you got it in there, the two of you can get it out. Yeah. Sure. Well, that's how I felt about birth, too, except I will say, and this may have something to do with her concern, but I don't know if they could be related at all. I did have a complicated birth experience, my last uh, home birth, where we experienced um, shoulder dystocia. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my was, baby was dystocia. Large. Uh-huh. And what did you do with that shoulder dystocia? What did the midwife do? Um, they pulled the baby out really violently. But you get, uh impressed on my pelvis did they and did break all this the crazy clavicle? Stuff. No. No, there weren't any broken bones. It wasn't violent. Oh, okay. Then in situations well, like where we've broken the baby's clavicle to get it out, that's violent. Yeah, yeah. Well, I understand. Was, um, it was traumatic. It was traumatic, yeah. but you weren't transported, and you and the baby were fine afterwards? Um, yes, but they did contact EMS, like, when she was initially stuck, just, I guess, preemptively. So I had to go to the children's hospital like immediately after the birth and then that was a whole like really terrible experience because they um and you had to go why well um I guess because my husband um yeah I mean it was like sheer panic and he's uh really susceptible to to fear you didn't yeah. Have well, to go. I chose to go. Yes, but you chose uh, to go you. because yes. you're putting yourself out as somebody who gets pushed around by everybody. <laughs> they made me do oh. this. <laughs> she wants me to do that. I don't hear any self direction at all. Oh yeah, it can be kind of hard sometimes. I was in the middle of a total panic attack, and I didn't know what had happened. And everybody was saying, "Go to the hospital." So I agreed to do it. Sounds like what happened. Well, they took the baby, and my husband went with them, and like, yeah, I don't think anyone was really listening to me at that point because I was. Who who took the Who took your baby from you? The EMS people. They came to your house and took the baby. Yes, with and my husband got in the ambulance and left with them. So I had to go if I wanted to be with her. <laughs> so I chose to go so that I could be with her. True. You chose to go. You didn't have to go. Yes, that is true. Yes. You could have said, I am not going to that hospital. My husband is there with the baby. They'll check her out, and he'll come home with her all as well. <laughs> yeah. They kept her there for a week, though. I completely understand how difficult that would have been, but it's always useful for us to remind ourselves that we 
always are making choices. I agree, yeah. Because otherwise, then we start to just give way, and we wind up in a life, and we say, how did I get here? I don't like this life. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. So you don't think that thyroid levels or anything like that would have been related to a very large baby and shoulder dystocia? Or anything like that. I mean, is that something you've heard of? Ten pounds was your baby. Most likely. My baby was 11 pounds and 7 ounces. She was huge. Mm Mm-hmm. And often that's from sugar spills in the blood. I would look Mm -hmm. more to, you know, prediabetes. If yeah, a woman has usually large, my I talked about my my sister um, working as a midwife, and for a couple of years she was really into getting women to eat a lot of protein, and that every single birth was over ten pounds, and she said, "I'm backing off on the protein. This is just too difficult." So, you know, I I do I am not a thyroid expert. I cannot tell uh-huh. you whether or not thyroid misadventures would cause your baby to be bigger, but I can tell you for sure that diabetes or prediabetes can cause babies to be bigger and that a lot of protein in a prenatal diet can cause babies to be bigger. I definitely ate a lot of protein. So that seems to be, you know, the protocol, but I haven't – I'm kind of following my um, – well, my body and what I want to eat a little more this time. Like, I obviously still make sure I have protein. Oh, good. Once again, once again, we are coming back to you need to be self-directed. You need to not do what the protocol is. Right. The protocol is just the protocol. It's not for you. It's not to make you healthy. It's to cover their butts. Right. You need to decide for yourself. There's a wonderful group, CSPI, the Center for Science in the Public Interest, CSPI.org, Center for Science in the Public Interest. And they put out a really great um, newsletter about food. And a recent one within the past year was um, everything you think you knew about protein was, is wrong. Uh, so you might want to check them out. If you ever read a food label, you can thank CSPI because they're the ones who got the food labels on. If you look at the food label and you notice that it's a more reasonable serving size, you can thank CSPI because they're the ones who got that. If you look at a food label and you see that the fat is actually broken out into saturated and non-saturated, you can thank CSPI. This is what CSPI does. This is what the Center for Science and the Public Interest does. If you've been in a restaurant where they actually have the calories and the amount of sodium and their food posted, you can thank CSPI. Now, they have some hobby horses. They think nobody should eat full-fat milk, and they don't like salt at all. I don't agree with them on that. But I thank CSPI for making my life so much better and making 
nutrition information, so much more available to all of us. Yeah, it's good to know. Thank you. You're welcome. Dream blessings. Good night. Good night, Susan. Thank you. The next caller is coming from the 973 area code. Hi, Susan. This is Dorothy. Uh, I've been recently um, diagnosed with lymphoma and leukemia, and my cardiologist was taking a liver test, a CO2Q10 test, and since I was diagnosed in October, it was 13, and now it's up to 20. So I'm wondering, I'm looking for advice what to bring the liver, get the liver and other organs more healthy. I'm, I'm eating a good diet. I'm nourishing herbal infusions daily and um, Right. Good so for forth. you. I'm so sorry that you're facing leukemia. It's scary. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and, and we're doing a lot better with it, though. I mean, modern medicine has really um, got some great things to offer people with leukemia. I'm uh, quite surprised at the people um, around me who've had that diagnosis and are continuing on. Mhm. Mhm. Well, I'm yeah. not going to do chemo, the lymphoma as well. Um, I'm not going to do any chemo. I'm just eating a good diet and, and hoping for the best. <laughs> oh, I'm, right I'm look, then. I'm looking for advice. <laughs> the herbs that are considered to be the best for the liver are burdock root, dandelion uh-huh. root, yellow dock root, and the seeds of any thistle, usually milk thistle, that's what's specified, but it doesn't have to be milk thistle. You have to buy it, that's what you'll find is milk thistle seed. Milk thistle seed, yellow dock root, dandelion root, burdock root, chicory root are the liver-loving herbs. Dandelion is one of the easiest of the liver-loving herbs to use because any part of the dandelion prepared in any way, any day of the year, will help the liver. Okay. doesn't matter what you, you go to the store and you buy dandelion greens and you cook them up, it's going to help your liver. You get some dandelion root tincture, it's going to help your liver. You make some dandelion flower honey, it's going to help your liver. Any part of it prepared in any way. My green book, Healing Wise, has about 30 pages about dandelion, what it does, and wonderful recipes for dandelion. Hmm. And dandelion is renowned as an anti-cancer herb. That's wonderful. <laughs> Very good to know. Yeah. yeah. Dandelion, well, we all know dandelion. It grows in bright, sunny places and it has bright, sunny flowers. And so, in general, it's thought that if you're a really intense and fiery person, that dandelion could be too hot for you. Uh-huh. Burdock and chicory are liver-loving herbs that are considered to be cooler. Okay. They grow in shadier places, the chicory flowers. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but they only bloom in the morning before the sun really comes out. Once the sun comes out, oh, they're so shy, they just close up, and they're that beautiful, delicate blue color. And um, so chicory root um, is used in very much the same way the dandelion root is, with your vinegar and so on. Chicory leaves are interchangeable with dandelion leaves. As a matter of fact, most of the time when you go to a store to buy dandelion leaves, it says dandelion leaves are usually chicory leaves because chicory is so much Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. So chicory and dandelion are somewhat interchangeable, except that chicory is said to be cooling and calming 
and dandelion is said to be invigorating. Hmm. So I should not take that at night. <laughs> well, Very good. It, we're not talking about a stimulant. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about an effect that you have from taking it like coffee. We're talking about a deep energy effect. Uh, I see. Uh-huh. Right. Okay. Um, and the burdock is related to thistles. If you've ever seen a burdock flower, you will see, oh, my gosh, it has flowers just like thistles. Mm-hmm. And so that whole grouping there, the burdock and the thistles, have some things that are particularly helpful to the liver in dealing with specific things like hepatitis hmm. or specific insults from the environment like um, chemotherapy or poisonous mushrooms or tobacco smoke or exposure to chemicals hmm. mm-hmm. that, that the milk thistle and the burdock, especially if taken beforehand, prevent liver damage and if taken afterwards um, can help repair that damage. How much of each of this should I take? Like, that's quite a few herbs. You don't necessarily should need to take them all. Take them, okay, okay. If you have a box with 50 colors, you don't have to use them all, do you? No. In any one sure. picture. Right, right. Okay. Okay. I don't know which of these you have access to. I don't know which of them you have on hand. I don't know which of them you can easily get. I don't know very much about you. So I'm giving you a, a, a mm-hmm. buffet mm-hmm. from which you can choose. Right, right. That's Yellow wonderful. dock is a very interesting liver-loving herb. Like the dandelion, we have circled back around to yellow. Mm-hmm. The thistle, the chicory, the burdock are considered to be a little more cool. Mm-hmm. Right? And then the yellow dock, again, is a plant of sunny places with a yellow root. And that root is considered one of the world's best allies for regularity in bowel movements. Oh. Hmm. Yellow dock has the amazing ability to increase the amount of available iron in the blood without supplying iron itself. Oh, really? That's interesting. We think that it triggers Hmm. an enzyme that helps your body metabolize iron. Uh Uh-huh. So yellow dock does some things that the others don't. What I like to do is, rather than try to talk to six people at once, I like to go and sit with somebody and talk to them for a while and then go and talk to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So which of these herbs is easily accessible to you? you Are there any you've already made remedies of? That would be a good Mm -hmm. place to start. Okay. it, right? If you're going to have to buy it, where are you going to buy it from? What's available? Do you feel like you want something that's going to calm you down or something that's going to get you going? Mm-hmm. And again, not sedatives or stimulants, but a deep, deep inner movement there. So there's some basis for choice. And then as you're working with them, just have a sense of who they are. 
Mm-hmm. Our energies intermingle with each other, and they intermingle with the plants. And just like there are some people that you meet, and all you have to do is just look at each other, and you know you like this person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the same the thing here. Same mm-hmm. thing can happen with plants. Right. I see that. Yeah. And I, as the, the the introducer, can't tell who that's going to be, right? <laughs> True. Right. Right. <laughs> right. 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 Uh, As the lymphoma, I'm hoping some of it dissolves. How would I? How would I eliminate that? Eliminate them. The herbs that are most active in the lymphatic system are cleavers and poke. Oh, and poke. And it's poke root and the tincture of the fresh root that is used, usually in very small doses. But um, for the past couple of years, I've been very interested in people using poke um, who have a cancer diagnosis, and they're using it in amazingly huge amounts. Hmm. So what I suggest is that you start with one drop of poke and the next day two and the next day three and so on. And if you get a place where you get, like, hallucinations or loose bowels, cut back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. That is actually not that bad. I mean, you're not going to, like, have, you know, gripping pain and be in, in torture. But you'll see, oh, whoa, look at that. I went to the bathroom mm, six times today. A little much too much there. I don't, okay. Time right. to go backwards. <laughs> right. Cut back, cut back. And then, after a week or so, start going up again. I have oh, actually uh-huh. met people who have busted their cancer by taking as much as a tablespoon of poke root tincture a day. Oh, my goodness. Oh, with okay. no side effects. You gotta build up to it, but if mm-hmm. there's cancer active in your body, it's pretty amazing how much pokeroot tincture your body can utilize. Hmm. Okay. I will try ma- most of these. <laughs> what yeah, kind? Give us a call back in a while and let us know how you're doing. Okay. Okay, I'll do that. Thank you so Thank very you. much. Thank you. Appreciate your night. help. Good night. How many more people are waiting with questions, Rebecca? Right now, we don't have anybody queued up, actually. We, the last all, uh, caller just dropped. So if you have a question for Susan, please press 1 to speak with her. Hey, that's great. I can do that. No sweat. She's going to queue up quite a few people on the line. So I thought that at least one of these people would want to ask a question. If you press a 1, question? but... Let me um, switch over to uh, this email question, actually, because there was a woman that emailed. Where is it at? Okay. He said, the radishes sound very loud, aren't they? The radishes? You have radishes right now? Mm-hmm. Can you hear them? I bought them at yeah. the store. Look, they looked so good. No, we don't they have radishes. We have snow. Come. Yeah. I should be growing radishes, but I'm writing a book. Okay, here we go. She says, I have tried... Okay, sorry. I have two questions. I am... Gixson from Northwestern British Columbia. I work in traditional health and land-based programs. Is slippery elm bark similar in properties to spruce or pine candemum? 
Not at all. And number two. What? Not in the least. Okay. And number two, we have been making tea from wild hemlock reishi that grows here in our territories. Do you have any thoughts on the harvest and use that might help us? Also, your chaga advice, we have not harvested anymore, and I speak out on the over-harvesting and selling of this important plant. Thank you. How wonderful. You know, one of the things that I did when I was first here on my land in the 80s was I decided to spend a year with the ferns. And I got books about ferns. New York State is a fern destination from all over the world. We have a lot of ferns in New York State. And I have over 100 springs on my land. It's very wet land. And lots of rock walls for ferns to, not walls, but cliffs for ferns to grow on. So there are a lot, a lot of ferns just right here within walking distance. And I really learned a lot about ferns and could identify them and learned how they'd been used and all kinds of stuff. And after I had done that and really felt first, and I said to the ferns, okay, I'm now prepared to like share what I know about the ferns with the world. What do you want me to tell the world? And the ferns said, please tell the world that we're not supposed to be used anymore. Hmm. And I was shocked. And they said, no, the, the time for our giving to the humans is over. We don't, we're not going to do that anymore. And at the rate that I see mushrooms disappearing, I'm wondering if something similar is going on with the mushrooms. A very interesting, you know, Paul Stamets, uh, who wrote Mycelium Running and Mr. Mushroom, doesn't think that it's really important to use the mushroom itself. He uses the mycelium. And he grows it. So I wonder how much of the wild mushrooms is there for us anymore? I don't know what you've seen around where you live, but I have certainly seen from climate change. I would say that the major edible and medicinal mushrooms that were on my land when I moved here 40 years ago are reduced by two-thirds. Yeah, there's a lot. And plus, where I live, there's tons of hippies that go into the woods and, you know, yeah. they're, yeah, people harvest a lot here, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so I, I I really sense a drawing back from the whole mm-hmm. nation of mushrooms. And um, so I, I, the question is, what would I suggest? What I would suggest is that you make that um, harvest and that drinking of that hemlock rishi a ceremony hmm. so that real attention is paid during the harvesting and during the preparation and then during the ingestion so that there's no, nothing that is um, insignificant about it. And, and, and know, growing your own. I, yeah, I, know, really... I know that this woman who's writing, I know that she knows exactly what I'm talking about. 
That the mm-hmm. quality of attention. She knows just what that is. Go ahead. Yeah, and um, just I've I haven't grown Rishi myself, but I know some people that do, and it's it's a pretty simple process, and it doesn't take a very much space. And I've been wanting to to experiment with that and like growing some of my own just in my yard. So I know that that's a possibility as well. When I walk into a supermarket in America, usually near the front door, there are flowers for sale. So when I mm-hmm. walked into supermarkets in Japan, what was in that place of honor near the front doors were mushroom logs. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Just little sections of logs with plugs of mushrooms. You take it home and water it and harvest your own mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Pretty interesting. America's pretty interesting, huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I I love the mushrooms. I feel very much akin to um, the mushrooms. They were they were my first love before really before I I realized that there were even plants out there. The plants were just kind of places for the, to you know things to push aside so that I could find the mushrooms. I was just so fascinated with the mushrooms and all of their their different forms and the different ways that they had of of being and of their textures and the way they had of uh, connecting me mm-hmm. to to the planet and then ultimately what they did was connect me to the plants. Right. Yeah. 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 They do that. Um, so we did have a few people queue up with questions, but I think we're only going to have time for one more call. And that is coming from the 541 area code. Hi, Susan. Hi. You know, I heard that there was no one else, and I thought this would be a perfect chance to just call in and say thank you um, just for everything that you teach um, in so many ways. And I know you've you've heard the gratitudes um, over the years, but um, really, truly has changed my life in a lot of ways, so... Thank you. <laughs> oh, you know, gratitude never gets old. Have <laughs> yeah. you ever once said, oh, yeah, well, somebody thanked me yesterday. I don't need to be thanked today. No, we all like. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. <laughs> so thank yeah, you. Um, I do very much uh, appreciate your calling to tell me that. Yeah, and just the herbal infusions, um, I think it's been hard for me to – Like, I haven't been wanting to, like, proselytize, you know, like, put it on people. <laughs> but I mention it as much as I can and make that information as much as I can. Um, and just, you know, through now it's part of my lifestyle. Now it's something I do every day. Um, so I feel good doing that. Um, it's taken me about a year, I think, to really feel uh, just, you know, when you talk about, like, that deeper sense of um, change that they can bring, I started to really feel that at about a year. Mm, lovely. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much, um, and I'll keep listening. All right. <laughs> All right. Green blessings. Good night. Good night. Should we try to squeeze one more caller in here? Sure. I think we got time. 
Okay, in the 561 area code. Hi, Susan. Hello. Hi. Uh, I'll make it quick. Um, I don't think I've ever heard you speak about yerba mate as a tea or a tincture. Uh, any insights about whether it's uh, the benefits of it? Mate is used quite a bit in South America. And it is a plant that ha- that is um, notable for caffeine. Yes. And I'm not particularly attracted to caffeine. Mm-hmm. I don't drink coffee. And so mate has never appealed to me. If I want an herb that's drunk a lot in a place far away from home, what I want is rubus. African bush tea, red tea. Right, okay. So, you know, that's my little exotic fling. Even even though um, the Yoramete might be a different form of caffeine and offer a calming and focus and concentration benefit, I have nothing against it. I didn't say anything against it. Rubus is also an herb, and it has wonderful qualities. Mm-hmm. Okay. If well, you, you like mate, go for it. A lot of people like mate. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. You are welcome. Green blessings. Have a great day. Green blessings. Tonight, we have the special opportunity to be with Vera de Chalambert, also known as Vera Babayeva. She's a spiritual storyteller and a Harvard-educated scholar of comparative. Vera speaks and writes about spiritual culture, about mindfulness, and about the emergence of feminine wisdom now in our time. Her work explores the meeting place of theology, spirituality, and social change, and is informed by interspiritual insights from the world's great wisdom traditions. Vera works with clients from all over the world and offers coaching, mentorship, and spiritual direction. She's been invited to speak internationally at colleges and conferences such as Science and Non-Duality, Sister Giant, The Dawn of Interspirituality, and Vera Holmes, a master's degree from Harvard Divinity School. I'm so glad that you've taken the time to be with us tonight, Vera. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Susan. I don't know whose bio you read, (laughs) but they sound important, and I promise you I am nothing like that. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Well, it was the one you sent me. <laughs> I know. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's actually been so lovely to listen in a little bit to your show. Um, it seems like some themes emerging that we can touch on together. I was so touched by what you were saying about the ferns kind of having said enough and about the mushrooms, which might be my favorite food. <laughs> and and I love mushrooms. Um, kind of being on the similar, on a similar trajectory, it kind of broke my heart um, to hear. 
Yeah, well, I think it, I think it has more to do with the wild mushrooms. I think that growing mushrooms is going to be more and more and more important. Uh huh. And the and the wild mushrooms are going to. They're, I think that they might be taking a little space from us. I'm not sure. I come from. I was born and raised in Russia, and um, wild mushrooms are a very big deal there. People have very deep relationship with mushrooms. Lots of people spend a lot of time in the forest um, building these relationships with mushrooms, and so yes, exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, very, very important. You have written a, something entitled "Kali Takes America." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What is it? What happened to it? Tell us more. Well. Kali Takes America, huh? It was, it was an article that I wrote right after Donald Trump uh, won the election. And it kind of went viral, um, this article, because I think I really touched on um, something that a lot of people were, were feeling. There was this sense of, um, of shock uh, when he was elected, I think, that, that echoed around the world. And... Um, so I saw that as an emergence, um, or I saw the, the way the way Trump's election shocked us. I saw that as a kind of a, um, illumination of our spiritual immaturity, if you will, you know. And uh, I saw that shock as something that might potentially wake us up. Um, the, Ralph Waldo Emerson says something that I really love. He says, only to the degree that we are unsettled is there any hope for us. And I thought, oh, here we go. We needed to be unsettled. We needed our illusions had to be stripped from us. And so I saw the emergence of the feminine as a shatterer of illusion. And so... I saw uh, there was this moment where the goddess Kali, which was this this, um, Hindu goddess of spiritual liberation, was once projected on on the top of the Empire State Building, not so long before before Trump's election. And uh, I took it as a kind of a sign of the times that something was coming where, where... we could no longer continue with the illusions that we were carrying with us before and that it was time for us to wake up, uh, that, that, uh, the goddess was projected, uh, actually as an avatar of, um, conservation. There was this movie, a documentary film about, um, the sixth extinction. And, and, you know, we all know now, um, we all know now that we live, we live in a new era, as you know, right? The scientists have now named, given a name to this new era that we have entered, right? They call it now the Anthropocene. So every 20 minutes, a species dies out on our planet. And this new epoch of, of unprecedented climate crisis and destruction um, is now called the Anthropocene. And so a lot of the work that I do, a lot of the subject matter 
that, uh, that, that touches me and that I try to, to wrestle with has to do with this new era, with this new epoch, which is shaking us up, which is throwing us into the, into the unknown, and that, as I, I believe, is maturing our collective soul. Uh, yeah. You can only, not very, not very, can only not, say not unprecedented climate change if you keep your view to, what, the past couple of million years? Well, that's very true. Certainly. Let this is not unprecedented climate change here in terms of the planet. It is unprecedented in terms of it's how unprecedented much in terms of us. In terms in, of exactly. us, this climate has been in terms of how we the have Earth has seen far, far of greater course. climate shift. Of course, agreed, a hundred percent. And there have been mass extinctions over and over and over again in which ninety eight percent of all life forms were wiped from this planet. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. So I just want to say that what's going on Although it's scary because we're in the middle of it, it's not unprecedented or unnatural in any way at all. Well, I guess the question is out whether um, natural and natural is, is, is questionable, I think. Part of nature is natural. It's completely natural. What's scary for us is that we could be one of the ones who goes extinct. Absolutely. That's what's really scary for us. We, And I think that's what you mean about the maturing of our collective soul is that perhaps our collective soul has been in a kind of, you know, teenage days of immortality. Exactly. I don't know. And that, that we need to grow up a little and say, oh, wow, every life has a terminus. Every life comes to an well, end. Well, we definitely How do we want, what do we want our end to be? I mean... Isn't that one of the great questions of spirituality? How do I want my end to be? Isn't why there's sure. that? Isn't why there's so many novels in people's closets because they can't figure out how to end it? Very true. Right. And Kali is the great ender, isn't she? She's the great everything. But yes, yeah, she's the great call. The word Kali comes from Kal, which both means dark and time. So she swallows time. She's the beginning. She births this universe, and she swallows it back up into her, you know, her holy womb and her holy tomb. Really, um, really, she's, she's everything. She's the great non-dual Devi. So, uh, and, and being intimate with... Um, with all of life, not only the pretty parts, not only the comfortable parts, but all of it um, is the kind of spiritual stretching that we definitely need in this in this time of our maturation, as you said. As you said uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Kali, let me just paint a small image for you. First of all, she is usually shown standing on a copulating couple. Mm. So her feet are planted on this couple who are creating new life. She herself is giving birth. You see the baby's head emerging from between her legs. She is wearing a often a belt made of snakes and a necklace made of skulls. And she has just cut off someone's head and is 
catching their blood, the, the blood from this severed head in a bowl which she is about to drink. What did I miss? Um, well, she, she, the head that she has cut off is actually a head of a demon. See, you see, in the Kali myth, and we want to be very careful because we are speaking about a culture that has been colonized, right, by, by, um, by the Western world. So when we speak about it, we want to be careful as to, as to uh, how we use these images. Um, but but um, what is happening in the Kali myth is that the demons um, of illusion, the demons of greed, the demons of ego have taken over the world. And the gods are powerless before them because they receive special powers, special, special um, gifts, where they are meant to be unconquerable by any man god. And therefore, it turns out that the only power strong enough to conquer these demons is the feminine, is the goddess, is the judge. Um, and so there is this great battle unfolding. First, the goddess Durga rides in on her on her lion, and and valiantly fights these demons. And she's this powerful goddess. She's dressed in red. She is. She has weapons of war. Not you know. She is a great warrior. And she begins to realize that every time she wounds the demon or some in some myths demons. There's various versions of this myth. With every drop of their blood, a thousand more demons spring up. And so it appears that every time she's winning, she's actually losing. And it appears that the world might be lost. The world itself might be lost. And in this moment where the world seems most seemed, and it seems hopeless, from within Durga, from her third eye, this greater, deeper, darker Shakti, this darker force, this darker, most powerful goddess emerges, and that is Kali. And Kali has this great red tongue, and she is thirsty, and she is most powerful, unconscious. Conquerable. She begins to lick up this blood of demons before it hits the ground, and she fights and she she cuts off their heads and conquers conquers uh, these demons in this great battle for the world, and therefore saves the world. The dark feminine saves the world from destruction, and so there is some parallels that we might draw between this epic epic story at the, you know, in this time where destruction is upon us and our own time where, well, destruction is certainly upon us. And so this emergence of this deep, dark, feminine energy is something that I'm very interested in. What is it? What is within us? Um, that has that power to conquer what needs to be conquered in our own time. And, uh, you know, one of, one of the great theologians 
of our time, Matthew Fox, who says, the ground of the soul is dark, right? We typically think of darkness as something quite negative, as something we want to run from, to hide from. We don't like it so much. It makes us unsettled. It makes us uncomfortable. And yet, and yet the ground of the soul is dark, right? How much do we disown of ourselves? of the inconvenient feelings we might be having, which might, in fact, be aspects of our souls that have the most power, the most meaning, um, the most relevance even for our time and for our spiritual growth. You know, when you said we are, it's enough with our teenage shenanigans, pretty much. You kind of said that, right? That this time (laughs) mature us from our little reverie it reminds me of certainly you know marion woodman the great the great um uh late um uh psychologist marion woodman who said that in old traditions in the time when we still had initiation in our world right as when initiation still existed in our in tribal society what it meant was that when people began to come out of childhood, uh, they needed to be initiated into adulthood by the tribe or sometimes by the shaman of the tribe. And what did that look like? What does initiation, maturation, taking adult place in adult society look, to, look, look like? It looks like being thrown very often in the middle of the night into a dark pit where you did not know if you were going to survive And in that time, you needed to rely on your own inner resources, on your own intuition, on your own deep um, wisdom or emergent wisdom to survive that night or nights when you were in the dark pit. And so uh, that Marion Woodman very, very keenly said that we are all collectively undergoing such an initiation. We're all being thrown, in an absence of initiation in our lives, we're all being thrown into a pit of despair where our own inner authority, our own inner wisdom, our own true vision must be relied on so that we can mature. And we must not fear this this difficult time, this dark time. It is a time of initiation. It is a time of maturation. It is very important, and in many ways, um, it is necessary for our collective evolution and our individual evolution. Since your since your show is about is about herbs, it also reminds me that you know every seed must go into the darkness of the earth to sprout, right? And it's not a lovely, it's not an easy process. The seed, what does the seed do? It falls completely apart. It must break completely apart so that new life may sprout. And it must go into darkness. And very often, fertility looks like dissolution, looks like destruction. And very often, we don't allow the process to to. Leave, lead us to transformation. We stop it because it is too uncertain, because it is too threatening, because it is too painful. But we this, must trust. This literally happened to me. I Tell was me. about 20, 
six years old. Mm-hmm. I was running a very high fever mm-hmm. and having fever visions, and I saw a pair of hands with a white globe between them appear in front of my face, and the globe start to be lowered down over my head. Mm-hmm. And I, of course, felt very happy about this, and I allowed that to happen. And that was then replaced by a dark globe, which was being lowered over my face. And instead of feeling awe, I felt fear. And that fear shut me down, and it was another 20 years before I got to that place again. Mm-hmm. Mm. Because awe is the companion of fear. Exactly. And that's what I had to learn, that when I felt that fear, I could say, awe. You know, that's that, that place where we split off, where we say, awe is okay, but fear not so much. Right. Where we say, hope is okay, but grief not so much. That's mm. where we split life. Yes. That is where we cut ourselves off from our potential, from yeah. our great uh, from, and, and from the pain of the world, which we need to feel, especially right now, so that not only could we grow the F, excuse me, up, but also <laughs> so that we can begin to rise as the protectors that we are called upon to become in this time. Is, is, <sighs> is that sacred activism? Oh, yes, Exactly. So sacred activism, I love that you mentioned this term. You know, Andrew Harvey, who if you guys haven't heard about, is this great, uh, great sacred activist and revolutionary kind of spiritual visionary prophet. Um, he, he coined this term, spiritual activism. He said that when, when the passion of the mystic for God and the passion of the activists for justice unite, the third fire is kindled within us, and that is the fire of spiritual activism. As that, and that if we are to indeed survive this time, that is the fire that will carry us through. Because we can no longer bliss out in, in happy mountaintops, as so many generations of, excuse me, you know, spiritual dudes, and it has been spiritual dudes, because that's who all the spiritual traditions have been created by, <laughs> celibate men, or usually celibate men, well, enough. We no longer have that privilege. So it is time to get into our bodies. It is time to begin feeling our heartbreak and feeling our joy and feeling our confusion, feeling everything that we're given waking up our body, our wisdom, our everything that has been cut off before. So so we can mystic is no longer someone who's disembodied and serene all the time. No, it's happening happening here among our among our messy lives. Yeah. So when the among the great injustices of our world that we can no longer turn a blind eye to. So we must reunite the life, uh, our lives, reunite everything that has been sent into exile and bring all of the children of our awareness back in. You know, I really, I, 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 I always say that cutting off the inconvenient is a form of spiritual fashion, right? 
So we can no longer cut off inconvenient feelings. We can no longer pretend that things that touch other people are not touching us. Everything is interconnected. interconnected. And if anything, we are beginning to see this more and more directly, right? That we are, we are not free until we are all free. And it is our responsibility to stand for each other, to stand for our world, to stand for our earth, to stand for our winged ones and furred ones, you know, and rooted ones that we are one body and that we're waking up together. And the only way is to do it, to do it holding hands and respecting each other and being in relationship, as you said. And I love that, that you invoked, that we must begin to do things in ceremony, to build relationships with, with our world as a ceremony to sort of counter this culture, this tyranny of convenience, this tyranny of, you know, of uh, unconsciousness. We, last week, a great poet passed away. I'm sure you've heard Mary, uh, Mary Oliver has passed away. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, uh. and she said so many amazing things, but she always said attention is the beginning of devotion, right? She said, um, she said that the, somewhere I have this quote, it's so beautiful. She said that this is the first, the wildest, and the wisest thing I know that the soul exists and is built entirely out of attentiveness. All right, so I love that, that invocation that we must begin to pay sacred attention to everything once again so that we can begin to restore our world. Inside and out. Joseph said, um, what will you do? And everyone, you know, loves to quote this. He says, what will you do? Um, what will you do with your, tell me, what is it that you plan to do with your one wild, precious life? And everyone loves to ask this question, you know. But very often it's asked by, by sort of like coachy types that say, you know, kind of there's a pressure. Well, what is it that you're doing with your life? So what I really remembered last week, I remember reading an interview with her, and you know what she did with her one wild, precious life? She meandered in nature. She spent her days wandering in nature and watching the wild geese and building relationships with grasshoppers and oaks and trees and the earth. And so I love that because it gives us permission to do the same. Right, it gets us out of this um, kind of paradigm of of productivity and success and and um, destruction, actually, and brings us back, invokes relationship, invokes simplicity, invokes the permission to uh, meander and to rewild ourselves and our lives and our ways on this planet. And Laura, how beautifully you have drawn that spiral from the male mystic who is in nature but not of nature, cut off, denying body, trying to be spiritual by, by not being embodied, and how that 
is so different when it becomes the female mystic who is embodied and embodies herself in and of and through nature. Exactly. So, so beautiful, this beautiful spiral you have laid out for us here tonight. It, it's hard to believe that our time is almost gone. This is Susan mm-hmm. Reed. I've been talking with Vera D. Shalmabert, also Vera Babayeva. And what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Well, my website is www.healingawakening.com. Um, that's healingawakening.com. And I'm so grateful. Thank you for this time together. It was most, most delicious. And thank you for this work that you do. It's beautiful. You are so welcome. There's just so much that we could talk about. You're absolutely fascinating. I do like to give the last few minutes of the show to you and ask you this question, what do you want to leave in the hearts and the minds of everyone who's listening to you, Vera? Mm. <laughs> Such a great question. And I, I, I had all these ideas, and suddenly I'm blank. But I can tell you that this morning... I went to the beach. I live in Florida. And I went to the beach. It's it's a little it's a little chilly for Florida weather. And I love taking these long walks. Um, very often as I begin to walk and to pray, um, I'm kind of taken over by grief. And it happened again this morning. So I was just wailing at the ocean. Lucky for me, because it is chilly, there was only me in the ocean. There was no one, no one there. But this enormous wave and wave of grief began to move through me, you know. And um, I, start, I found a, a, a piece of driftwood and I kind of started um, to drum on it and kind of sing with it, with my, with my cries. That's not to say that I'm crazy. That's to say that something began to move through me that I almost felt had a collective peace. And that after I was done with my little, with my little almost ceremonial, but like spontaneously and accidentally so, uh, wailing session, you know, it, it was, became almost strange that everyone collectively isn't just out wailing and singing and drumming and grieving together. And, um, yes. yeah, so, so my, what I would want to, to leave with is, is just to say that there's something about holding both hope and grief together and not splitting them. About allowing our hearts to break in a ways in which the world is definitely giving us a million opportunities to break them in. Leonard Cohen would say, you know, the, there's a crack in everything. That is how the light gets in. So may we allow the ways in which our hearts break to, to sanctify us and not to bring us into radical despair. The ways in which to open us ourselves to grief, not as something that, that will, you know, destroy us in some way, but something that is, will in fact heal us because all of it needs to be felt. And so I recently read this quote from, from a great bard, a great thinker, a Stephen Jenkinson, who writes about grief and death and dying. And he says, the great enemy of grief is hope. Hope is the four-letter word for people who are unwilling to know things for what they are. 
Our time requires us to be hope-free, to burn through the false choice of being hopeful and hopeless. There are two sides of the same con job. Grief is required to proceed. So may we grieve, may we pray, and may we turn inwards and allow the, the integrity and wisdom of our heart to guide the way forward. Thank you all so much, and thank you, Susan. Thank you, Vera. Thank you for helping to reweave the healing cloak of the ancients. Magnificent addition to the tapestry. Thanks, Rebecca. Herbal medicine as people's medicine. Yeehaw! Good night, everybody. Green blessings. Good night, everyone. Thank you.